Everybody, welcome to America Mao and the Metalverse with the two Pauls. Paul, how are you? I, we're good. You're trying to figure out the world, and, and we're still going through this deleveraging of the uh, private bank credit uh, bonanza that was given out for sexy tech stocks and uh, crypto and a lot of the insure tech and, and uh, fintech and prop tech and all the other jazzy stuff that's been coming out. And we're seeing still ongoing falls. We, we see all this weakness in Nubank, in Grab, in Paytm, in Robinhood, and so many other of these have been flattened. And so I still think we're, as we discussed last week, we're still seeing the, um, we're still seeing the uh, unwind of the private bank excesses for margin leverage fallout still occurring. I think the Fed is not going to be able to loosen up to accommodate millions of retail investors who are getting clobbered. I think they're looking at the top line of the indices and the top line of inflation, and they know they can't budge. And so I do think the Fed's going to have to do a U-turn here, though. I think there's so much damage on the retail level in so many of these 2 to $10 billion retail stocks ongoing. And in the meantime, the anti-China activity in the United States continues. We have several news stories of counterintelligence, investigations, arrests, and we have McMaster, who's on the still on his book circuit. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think when you and I've done America Mao in the metaverse, we occasionally do America, we occasionally do Mao, and initially we've done a lot of metaverse. And this is a good opportunity, I think. And when you and when we talk about H.R. McMaster, who was a the former national security advisor under Donald Trump, and he has written a book back, well, he wrote a book back in September of 2020, which is still getting a lot of attention in all random places like the Joe Rogan show, which is um, completely random. But the interview there, which is something you sent to me late last week, is it's a fascinating conversation. And again, obviously, General McMaster is a, he's a Republican. He, he served under the, the previous administration. But from my conversations with folks in Washington, I think that his broad framework about, which can best be described as China containment, right, is pretty bipartisan. And if there's one yeah. thing that doesn't get enough appreciation is really the, the lack of change in the China agenda from the Trump years to the Biden years, if you were to pick one area of policy which simply didn't change, when everything else has changed, gone 90 degrees, China policy has really been an evolution rather than a dramatic shift. And mate, so I wanted to mm-hmm. a little bit about the book. It's called Battlegrounds, as I said. It's still getting traction 18 months after its, after its release. But talk a little bit about this and, again, the... The interview, I would strongly recommend people go and have a listen to. I mean, you know, the fact it's a Joe Rogan show doesn't mean that the content's any less intellectually stimulating and very insightful. So, Paul, why don't you give us out your synopsis of this and we'll go and then we'll have a, a little chat about it all. Yeah, sure. Joe Rogan's got a lot of followers. So this is going to be something that's going to get a lot of coverage around the country. It's one of the most popular shows around there. So again, he's articulating something which is a multifaceted front, which is political, military, economic, private, public, Pentagon, private sector, 
strategic alliances, diversification of technologies away from vulnerable centers like Taiwan. I mean, he ran the whole gamut. He started off with this aggressive move of diversifying the technology industry outside of Taiwan into Arizona, Texas, Malaysia, Korea, and Japan. And so basically, you're talking about diversifying it into four different countries. And he's one of these people who is going to go up and call up the old Cold Warrior language of the, certainly I grew up in working at the Reagan National Security Council in the 80s, which is, it just feels like I'm, I'm like living a dream from, from many years ago. It's basically a global coalition of the free against the enslaved communists. And, and this is exactly the same language that was used in the 1980s. And so we are looking at a free world that's trying to liberate China. We had another big podcast today that I was looking at that had another guy from the Johns Hopkins SICE. And he was talking about the, you got, got to call up the uh, voice of America again. You got to get out the message that this is a contaminated regime who needs to be brought down. And it's just this crazy talk that's reminiscent of the Soviet Union. So McMaster's language, I think, is pretty gross. Basically, China foisted the pandemic on the world. No, it didn't. Pandemics arise where they arise. The global pandemic of 1918 that killed 50 million people came out of a military barracks in Kansas. That's an undisputed fact. The China bludgeoning to death, Indian soldiers in the Himalayas, <laughs> the overflights of Taiwan. There was blame on both sides. Both sides had casualties. It was a skirmish. Bad, look, bad, but it happens, right? They don't allow those guys to carry guns. They allow them to fight each other with whatever they have, rocks or whatever. They're not allowed to carry guns. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's pretty comical. I mean, for God's sake, the weaponizing of South China Sea, intimidation against Japan, the economic coercion against Australia. And, and, and of course, this is, this is a narrative that is, is gaining ground and, and China is, is really awful at soft power and at gaining the, the high ground on a narrative. China is very poor at that. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically, we're looking at the strategies that, that the West has to confound and undermine are basically the military civil fusion of China, the Made in China 2025, which is pretty much independence from any external demand, including from the states, and the One Belt, One Road, which is using debt as a means to um, get your way into vital installations, infrastructure, ports. Now, believe me, I was working in the White House. I worked with the World Bank in Indonesia and the IMF in Indonesia via a, a consulting firm in the central bank. And hey, Paul, guess what? These are, these are exactly the same things the three the U.S. did in the 1960s to the 1980s, right? There was a military civil fusion there was an independence from any sort of dependence on any sort of Eastern Bloc, Soviet, or China on anything. Wheat, grain, agricultural goods. And, and if those countries wanted to be Marxist, you go in and you change the government, right? <clears throat> and, and so, and it's interesting. McMaster has a very interesting point for you and I talk about my time in Singapore. And Singapore just feels like, don't make us pick sides. Don't, don't make us choose sides. You know, Singapore, we're, we're a free port. We're the Switzerland of Asia. And the, the U.S. is really over that argument. I think Singapore has got something coming for it because the U.S. is going to say, we are on the side of sovereignty. 
China's going to give you, is going to make you a servant state. Which one do you want? But you better make up your mind. I mentioned this to some of my um, clients and some people who I do some advisory work with in the government. And I said, I, I just think the U.S. is not going to give you very much more time to be Switzerland. I think you, you better make your mind up. Well, and I think that we see that happening. Just, but just on that point, right? What can they do, right? So let's so let's say the 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 Singaporeans, the Singaporeans, you know, they may act Swiss. Let's 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 say they actually are you know are Swiss in terms of their their independence, in, you know, or their non-alignment. What can the U.S. do if Singapore remains unaligned? Oh, the, 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 one of the dirty secrets about the Pentagon budget, it's a gigantic number. It's currently $800 billion. So it's like more than the next like seven combined. That money gets spread around the world, baby. And Singapore is a big beneficiary of massive military contracts in its ports, in R&R, in submarine repair, in battleship repair, in all kinds of dry dock activity. And so the U.S. can come along and say, you know what, we got Australia, we got Sydney, we have, you know, Adelaide, we have other ports in Asia, we're starting to get along better with the Philippines. We need to make, we need to have you make up a decision or we're going to take these Pentagon contracts somewhere else. Right, but but get, get in the big picture things. All right. So let's, let's say, let's say they lose them all. So they lose all the Pentagon contracts. We talking, let's, say, let's, pick, let's pick an outlandish number of what that could be, 3% of GDP. 5%, let's say 5% of GDP, right? Correct. Which is no way it's that big, right? There's no way the number's that big. Is that a small price? Because, again, you can either piss off the, the, the neighbour who is your economic destiny, re- close, huge regional neighbour, right, of which there is plenty to do with, or you choose the United States, who has been, let's be clear, a less than reliable partner for quite, a, for quite a long time in the region, right? So I, I don't, when forced to choose, Singapore's automatic response is don't make me choose between you, right? But again, if forced to choose, why would they antagonise the military, the, the military neighbour that can, that potentially could do something negative, i.e. You know, there is a chance of a skirmish with them, with the Singaporeans in the worst-case scenario. But the end result with a status quo with the United States or, or neutrality with the United States, you lose a few military contracts. Putting it in that... Well, uh, hold on a second, you, though. I mean, you're you looking at, at, at uh, what if they, turn, if they cut Singapore off from American markets? What if they cut Singapore off from all of the Five Eyes intelligence? Oh, mate, if they're doing that to Singapore, they're doing that to Korea, they're doing that to, they're doing that to half of Europe, right? There's only, there's only so much the U.S. can do here, right? Because one of the primary reasons the U.S. has been able to be as dominant a power, and as you've alluded to, I think it's only something like yeah, so a couple of from Jimmy Carter's quote, a couple of years of peace in the last fifty years. Hundred and twenty years, yeah. America's been at war like every year except for like I think three. Yeah. Well, the one thing the United States had during that entire time, it's never had a true economic rival, and it has a true economic rival today, right? And particularly when you and I are talking just before that, and this is something I'd love you to talk about, is that US five G rollout's been delayed by two years. Yep. Right. How does that? How does that bridge the gap? How does sanctions on Singapore, which you know, again, worst case scenario, how does sanctions on on allies for not coming and supporting the United States, 
help the US close or maintain a gap economically with China? Well, I mean, Paul, come on, you have to admit that the, they've created highly effective choke points, both for Huawei and many other companies in China that have had a very difficult time getting a hold of semiconductors. And so that, that has been a win. Yep. So, so that's in the win category. That, that's one way you, you kneecap China is you cut off the supply of these critically important leading edge technologies. And then you, you can look, hegemonic empires are, are really known for their ruthlessness. The Roman Empire was utterly ruthless and violent. And that's how you keep your power. And America's done that very effectively for many, many decades. And it's pulling out the old, you know, they're, they're pulling out the old chestnuts again, right? Wait, These are the same. Viable, how viable is that strategy longer term? Again, what I don't hear, and this has been my complaint for several years, is you are not, and, and frankly, you've done a hurt a little bit in the Biden administration with the with the the push towards semiconductor, having some semiconductor su- supply here produced in the United States, right? But I hear I hear a hell of a lot about how do we drag China down. Yep, and I hear very very little about how do we build ourselves up. Well, I think that's right, Paul. I, I, I think, though, the other part of McMaster's strategy that that we should get to exactly on that point is basically. He's telling the American companies, okay, well, we're going to give you a stick and a carrot. And and the stick is you are not going to help China in any way, shape or form harvest data, analyze data, collect data, or especially in terms of domestic security or anything in the military. That's out of bounds. It's not going to happen anymore. And if you do it, we're going to arrest you. And that's a clear number one. Number two if you are doing this, you're doing this to extinguish freedom. And so we're going to get you in social media and we're going to trash you through various networks and and we're going to destroy your name and drag you through the mud. And and so... so Sorry, sorry what, are they, what are they, 14-year-old girls? I mean, I'm, I'm going to trash you on social media? Holy shit. Is that is that what we fucking become? <laughs> Look, hey, Paul, the FBI, when they arrest you, you your name is Mud. You're, you're doomed. It doesn't matter if you're guilty or innocent. I mean, that poor guy who was arrested at, uh, for, uh, I think he was at Harvard, as a Chinese guy for, you know, nonsense, and, and he was dragged through the mud for two years. He's ruined. He's never going to get a job in America again. This is what happened in the McCarthy era. McCarthyism was all about calling people in front of Congress, destroying their careers, and then good luck getting another job. We will, we will wreck your ability to have a job. And I, I think we, we should all take that quite seriously. But what yeah, I mean, you've seen it's, the it's, it's chilling that the FBI very likely has dossiers on every first and very likely second generation Chinese college student right now. Yep. This is something that you have to, that, that you have to consider. Now, the, 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 the carrot is that, as you and I have been talking about for a, a couple of years, the, the flood of money going into all of the stuff that, that needs to be jump-started because America just went down a really dark path with, with, when Trump was president. There was very little investment between public and private because that was the party. The party of Trump was a party that says government is broken and we're going to prove it, right? And, and now you have, a, you have a, a different party in power and they're saying government and the private sector needs to participate in a, in a, in a jump-start of these critically important infrastructure elements, which included, and I would say, 
the two my most exciting elements of this Mao Metaverse America thing is quantum computing and cybersecurity insurance. And so th those are two of my favorite areas now where there's just basically open checkbook on getting the, the race to getting the, the, quantum, the, the quantum secret sauce of being able to basically create an unbreakable code. Because right now, China's ahead. China's ahead in quantum communications. China's ahead in, in, in other quantum technology. China has placed quantum communications in satellites. That scares the hell out of the U.S. And so, again, we, we, as we talked earlier about 5G, there's so many areas in which uh, China is ahead. And, and America's got, it, got ahead. And in my last book, I had a whole chapter on what's going to have to happen between the Pentagon and the private sector, very much like what happened in the 70s and 80s, to catch up. And it's happening right about now. It's, there, there's quite a lag, as you mentioned. So mate, let's work our way backwards. Before we can get to quantum computing, let's assume we got 5G sorted out. Walk us through how, how this whole delay of 5G has come about. I know the FAA is part of this process, as in very, mm -hmm. you know, they can't confirm or deny, I think is the, the reality, whether 5G does have an effect on aircraft navigation and the like. Can you talk a little bit how the hell we got here? And again, if we talk about closing the gap, a, a two-year delay in proper 5G rollout? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, what we got here is, again, I, I did a book, two, two, three books ago, I did a book on 5G in, 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 and the, the critically important part of 5G, which allows, again, tremendous amounts of data, number one, but also a tremendous amounts of tiny um, data points, right? So you have tremendous width and tremendous quantity uh, that 5G can handle, that 4G cannot handle. And that's the kind of stuff you're getting with you know, edge technology, which allows you to use something the size of a shoebox to give you tremendous amounts of activity in logistics, in movement, in truck franchises, taxi franchises, national logistical movement of any industry, right? And if you don't have 5G, you're going to get... In big trouble pretty soon because the existing 3G and 4G simply can't handle this. And, and so, so first of all, AT&T and Verizon were really going down a road. I think that was stupid, which was a road. And one of my, my co-author worked for both those companies. He worked for both of them. And so he knew what was going on. And so they were going down a road of consumer, right? Creating a 5G consumer paradise. Well, Consumers didn't want to pay $1,000 for a slightly faster streaming service on their phone. That's not what 5G is about. China was using 5G for all kinds of logistical networks, right, of, on the corporate side. And, and America was going down this weird road of consumer. And then, by the way, to give you another a sense of, of, of many discussions that we had with people in the Eurasia group, in the intelligence community, and, and so forth, as we wrote the book, what was happening was that the Pentagon was dragging its feet on contracts and was just getting in its own way, disorganized, unfocused, and basically had delayed the auction of these, these various bandwidths for years, right? So, so the biggest logjam was with the Pentagon, who was basically hogging the uh, bandwidth for the National Security Agency, for the Defense Intelligence Agency, and of course, that there are like 16 intelligence agencies in the United States government, and, and all of them have their own fiefdoms. And guess what they want? 
their own bandwidth, <laughs> right? And of course you have the Homeland Security and the CIA and the FBI, and then you've got a lot of different code breaking and intercept elements throughout the government in the Navy, in the Army, in the Air Force, and then of course in the National Security Agency and so forth. And so it's really the, 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 the foot dragging and the disorganization of the Pentagon that has caused this giant cluster mess, right? And so here we are today with the airports now, by the way, today, what, what's been said is that the airports are saying, if we don't get 5G really quick, we're going to have a problem processing. We're not going to be able to, we're, we're, this is going to cause airports to shut down, right? So, so that's what the airports were saying today. And it's like what you said earlier, Paul, it's like, how can America's, there's such a a a, a, a vital national security need to catch up to China. And we still have all this like bumbling and, and fumbling uh, it, it, with bureaucratic stupidity. Obsession. You think, can, can this get any more screwed up? No, because it's just an obsession. And, and I get it works most of the time, <clears throat> excuse me, to have the private sector front and centre of infrastructure. It works most of the time, except when you have to have something that is so big and so large and so strategic that, you know, a, a pissing match between AT&T and Verizon over, over 5G in New York and LA and, and, and other cities where they make a lot of money out of it doesn't help the US as a, as a whole. And it goes back to the fact that industrial policy in this country is still a four-letter word and any... Correct. Any, any ...using parts of the Republican Party, using government to push, to, to push start the like be it semi uh, semiconductor independence you know i've argued consistently over the last you know 6 months that the us needs a strategic copper reserve for example for the push into ev that we're going to see over the the next 10 years there's no way republicans vote for a strategic copper reserve where mary, mary barra for example would love for gm to be guaranteed copper to to make sure that their build out of electric vehicle products is done so in a seamless way that doesn't have supply chain disruptions. There's no possible way that we're going to get to 30 and 40, so 50% of all EVs sold globally are going to be electric. We don't have enough copper to do that right now. So who gets yep. that copper? Well, Chinese automakers get that copper because they've got a strategic reserve, right? Chile is going to sell to the highest bidder, which is probably China and the US, but there's no guarantee of a supply chain in copper for Ford and GM, right? It's is it, but is it any wonder that Tesla is becoming so vertically integrated in its in its in its commodity purchases for batteries, right? Well, Paul, the, the, you know, I mean, this is what happened in the 1970s. In the 1970s, if you wanted a company like Anaconda Copper, who operated in Chile, to be able to supply copper to the United States, what they did is they went in and they just changed the government. And Allende was accidentally uh, shot and, you know, Pinochet came in and guess who Pinochet sold all the copper to? The United States. Guess who didn't get any? Uh, the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. And so and now what, what, what worries me now is I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. There's a new book out on the rare earth metals and the Mao metaverse and America is going to be played out in the world of what you're talking about in rare earth minerals. And where are the rare earth metals most prevalent? Africa, 
And so I think we're going to have some somewhat of a repeat of the 1970s in Africa, especially, unfortunately, in, in this tragic, tragic country, the DRC, uh, you know, the Democratic um, Republic of the Congo, uh, where there's quite a few of the main rare earth metals that you need for electric vehicles. And so you are seeing right now the French, Chinese, Russian, American entities all going at it in Mozambique, in DRC, in parts of Zambia, in Rwanda, in other parts of Africa right now where Peter, uh, Eric Prince's little mercenary groups are working and where there's dozens and dozens of special forces branches of the Navy and Army uh, operating throughout Africa. That's what the conflict in, 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 in Eritrea is all about as well, right? And so we've got, we've got a new hot wars, a series of hot wars that are, that are uh, Afghanistan. Come on, Afghanistan is about what you and I are talking about right now. There's there's elements of strategic depth that countries want that depth to keep their adversaries away, but they need also the resources in these countries as well. And so I think the issue of copper is relevant, but also I think that molybdenum and uh, many other minerals that are vital for, for, for autonomous vehicles are going to be coming out of the stands. They're going to be coming out of Africa and you'll South love, America. You'll love this. So we're interviewing in the next couple of weeks a guy by the name of Chris Messina, who's on the board of a company that is doing rare earth extraction in Greenland. He's also on the board of American Nickel. He claims as a, as a, staunch, as a staunch Republican that he was the man who was talking to Trump about there's the, the fact that there are a lot of rare earths in Greenland. Three days later, Trump offered the Danes, Danes a small fortune to buy Greenland from them. So, so uh, we'll be interviewing Chris. Apparently, he's the man who planted the seed in Trump's head that he that the United States should be buying Greenland, and it was all over rare earth minerals. <laughs> so he's the one to blame. I think that Trump had to figure out who owned Greenland or which country owned it or what was it for sale or, or can we buy it or do we need to invade it or what's going on here? I think, and I just listened to this very depressing podcast today of this guy from SICE who was just rabbiting on about the 1970s and 80s strategies of how to overcome your, your adversary by starving them out and by hogging the radio waves with negative sentiment about their country and out competing people with nuclear warheads. And I just thought, this is not, this just doesn't seem right to me. But, but I, 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 I have believed for several years that I think the Cold War that we're having now with China just because that's what we are. Humans, we're very unimaginative creatures. We don't have a lot of imagination. And back to what 14-year-old girls would do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, well, right now, look at right now, I'm telling you, when I was sitting in the White House in 1980s, the war with Afghanistan was going on. The war in uh, Mozambique was going on. The, 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 the battle in Namibia was going on. The DRC was going on. And Latin America was all heating up. Right. And that's exactly what's happening all over again. Right. Venezuela and, and you know, Russia and America and China have been going at it in uh, Nicaragua, in Venezuela. And Brazil has been a, a hot spot for China versus the U.S. in terms of getting 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 some attention and, and get, getting some love from each of those. India, India is just a pro at pitting one um, Cold War power against another. 100%. And, and, and it's, it's, it's exactly what we have in the 1970s. And 
I see that the leading lights of these think tanks like SICE, and of course, I went to the Fletcher School, I see this astounding absence of creativity and the imagination about the kinds of things that are that, that China's doing. I mean, for instance, the guy ended his 45-minute podcast. That's very well followed by this guy who worked for the CIA. Oh, and you'll love this. It's sponsored by Palantir. <laughs> so, so it's very neutral. And the last like couple of minutes was, you know, the guy was like, hey, China made a big mistake trying to outcompete America in nuclear weapons. And it's like, what? Where, do, where is he getting his information? That's the last thing China is interested. They might you know, be throwing a feint about nuclear warheads, but China's all about hypersonic missiles. China doesn't give a crap about nuclear warheads. Hypersonic missiles are where it's at, and they're putting tremendous amounts of, of money into that. Drone technology is where it's at, right? Uh, high quantity surface ships is where it's at. And so I used to be very afraid of what's going to happen. I'm not that afraid anymore because I think we're just going to get a repeat of the 1960s and 70s and 80s of small wars in a lot of countries fighting over rare earth metals in particular. I think you're really on to something important and governments are going to have to decide. Now, uh, back to Singapore on this exact point, I, had a, I have a friend. He was, he was in the U.S. Navy. And on Independence Day in Singapore, he was looking out his window of his apartment and, you know, they had the, they had the, they, they, every year, I'm sure you've seen it, they have the helicopters carrying the giant Singapore flag, which is like 50 feet by 30 feet. And it's really glorious. It's really good stuff. He said, but, you know, Paul, I just am looking at this and I'm seeing those are two Chinook helicopters that are very expensive. And it's followed by three Bell Hueys. Those are also American helicopters made in Texas. Right. I mean, uh, I didn't see those helicopters made in China. I didn't see the Bell Hueys or the Chinooks the equivalent made in China. The overflight were F-16s. I don't see Chinese overflight jets in Singapore. That this is a hundred percent funded by American military. And well, guess no, no, what? No, Switzerland does not. Yeah. Is it funded by American military, or is it Singapore, or is this the Singapore military and the hardware they bought from Lockheed and Boeing? Well, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, you stick your star on it, you, you, you buy it from America and you stick a star on it. That's great. You know, that's fine. Right. And, and many countries do do that. But I don't see any of, of, of Singapore military installations or military vehicles that have that are made in China that are part of the, the PLA that, that are have a Singapore flag stuck on it. But what? China doesn't really sell its military technology to anybody. Not, not on any scale. I mean, who? Who sells, who sells fighter planes? The Russians sell fighter planes, the French sell fighter planes, the Americans sell fighter planes, right? It's not like, I mean, the, the, the military industrial complex, right, has funded the global appetite for security has, has found its way through Lockheed, Raytheon and Boeing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are, so, again, it's not a zero-sum game here for the US if countries like Singapore remain neutral. Because the U.S. may pull contracts from from Singapore, but the Singaporeans have spent a lot of money in in terms of paying the likes of Raytheon and Honeywell and these sort of companies for military equipment. It's not a zero sum game. It's not. It's not just a. a, It it can be a zero sum game where the U.S. particularly (laughs) U.S. companies missing out on these very lucrative contracts. Well, I think that's right. But again, get, get, trying to get out your yellow stickies and put it on the fridge, sell arms to your allies. I mean, 
right? I mean, this is how you get your alliances. I don't know why China is so um, paranoid about selling their arms to alliances. I don't understand that, but you're right. I mean, they're very aversive to doing that. I, I don't understand that part of the strategy, mm. but, but it's a fair point. It's a very fair point. The Chinese don't have allies. The Chinese have business partners, right? The Chinese... Well, you know what? Maybe you should try getting some alliances. Maybe you should try getting some alliances. You know, maybe it's time to change. <laughs> well, Matt, you made the point very clearly before. They don't do soft power well, right? Well, maybe you want to try. Maybe you want to try a little bit. You know, I don't... You know, I think that, um, you know, that, look, they, the PR machine in China, whether it's the wolf, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy is pretty heavy, pretty heavy-handed. But So I've, I've made the argument with people before, and it's a bit... Bit pithy, but forgive me. Can you really be a superpower if you have no allies and you have no global brands? Because the one thing the US does have, right, and it is the US for all the deficiencies of China as a soft user of soft power. The US are masters of the use of soft power. China has a lot of global brands, man. Come on, there. ICBC, CCB is everywhere. Xiaomi is everywhere. Huawei is everywhere. Alibaba is everywhere. Tencent is everywhere. JD.com is everywhere, on and on. There's a lot of global power, global, global franchises. Asian brands, predominantly Asian brands, but Huawei's been dis- Huawei's been dis- Xiaomi's the obvious one, right? In terms, but CCB are not comparable in terms of brands to an HSBC, Barclays, JP Morgan, or, or City. City, yeah, sure. That's fair enough. That's fair. Um, That's fair. That's fair. I think the big picture, they don't have, they certainly, certainly at a minimum, the brands that China has cannot compare to brands from certainly the United States, Japan, France, the UK. You know, China, China's brand brand status is very, very early stage. And I think that's a part. Yeah, part that's fair. That's fair. Soft power. Well, well they've only been listed for 15, 20 years. They've only been <laughs> listed entities for a very short period of time. I mean, Citibank's been listed for decades. Goldman Sachs was in the 1890s. Oh, right, McDonald's, etc. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. That's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I'll buy that. What are you up to this week? I'm circling around. I'm doing a lot of technical analysis right now of like the my my fintech and my money metaverse portfolio, and it's still looking awful. The technicals are really terrible. So I have an algorithm I've created that looks at a bunch of different technical indicators, and still a lot of sell signals are going out, which is remarkable given how many of these things have fallen 40, 50, you know, plus percent. So that's something we're working on. I'm also, I, I spent a long time this morning reading an article that went into really deep dive detail, the birthday party that, that happened on January 3rd in Hong Kong with um, some really most of the, the top people in Hong Kong. We're not talking about some of the hangers on. We're talking about people that are central in LegCo that were in the pro-Beijing party. We have three of the cabinet ministers were at this party, including the head of the ICAC a top doctor whose wife was the spreader, <laughs> right? And, and, and this was done on January 3rd. And January 2nd, there was an emergency meeting of the cabinet to discuss Omicron on January 2nd. And of course, on January 3rd is when this happened. And by the way, January 3rd was also after, I believe it was Xi'an that was under lockdown, a city of 20 million people in China. So this has utterly infuriated China to no end. It's like you guys are just a bunch of children who don't even appreciate the sensitivity of the issue, the urgency of the issue, 
WTF is going on there? What is going on? You guys are just not getting it. And what do we need to do to make you guys understand how serious this is? And of course, what you've seen happen is, thank God you and I are not there. I feel so sorry for my friends who are still there. The cargo has been stopped to Hong Kong. Cargo flights to Hong Kong have been stopped. Today, the two flight attendants who also uh, scurried off and, and were spreader events from, the, from their flight and spread Omicron, they were arrested today. Shit. And passenger flights are down like 95%. So, and all international connections to Hong Kong have been stopped for the rest of the month. So there's no, there, there aren't even any international connections going into the Hong Kong airport. So essentially, you're going to see Hong Kong be a, a, a desert again until further notice. And I've just been sort of looking around and talking to people. And I, I think we're looking at, you know, we got to get ready for the, the party Congress in probably going to be end July, August. That's a critically important for the next five-year plan. And of course, I don't think China's going to do anything, certainly after the Olympics, and probably not before the party Congress on any significant move about Omicron. Because I, th- I think there was a general consensus that Omicron's a dud. It's, it's, it's bronchitis if you get it. If you're vaccinated, you don't. All the ICU wards are just not filled up anymore. That There are just a lot of people coughing their heads off and they're going home after two days, right? People aren't dying anymore, and, but the cases are just exploding, which is, I got to say, we're kind of like, thank God this happened to the human race with Omicron because it could have been a hell of a lot worse. The moral of the story is if you're in politics and there's COVID, don't throw a party. Boris Johnson could be out by the time this, this is released and the thing in Hong Kong is, is, is ridiculous. But, mate, let's leave it there. Let's uh, save it for next week. Enjoy Barcelona and we'll talk to you shortly. Okay, awesome. Good stuff. Cheers, mate. All the best. Thanks.